Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1. Both of those passages talked about the righteous and the sinner, and they used this imagery, uh, similar imagery in both passages um, in regards to the righteous and to the wicked. They talked about the wicked are like the shrub and a desolate salt land, and we talked about the Bonneville salt flats and what life is like there, how arid and dry it is. Then we talked about the righteous are like trees planted by the rivers of living water. The wicked are those who walk, stand, and sit with the sinners and the mockers, but the righteous are those who delight in the law of God. So much so it is central to their lives and their identity. Then we saw how Jesus in Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man, how Jesus is that blessed man, and how he is the one who did not walk in the way of the sinners and plants us by the streams of water where the Spirit causes us to grow and flourish and bear fruit. Today we look at the reading from Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph, and then we'll look at the portion from the Gospel of Luke uh, where Jesus talks about loving our enemies. So in the reading from Genesis, we see an important bit in the part of the story of Joseph. It's a very well-known story, and it's probably one of the most misinterpreted and mispreached stories in the Old Testament. So a lot of sermons on Joseph are reduced to something like this. If you just stay faithful to God, even in the midst of prison, he's going to make your dreams come true, right? Or something along the lines of just keep believing, don't stop believing, and God will grant you victory over life's circumstances. But brothers and sisters, this is most definitely not what the story of Joseph is about. What gets lost in a lot of popular preaching on Joseph is the fact that his suffering had a purpose. So think about that for a minute. He was hated by his brothers. He was stripped and thrown into a pit, sold into the sla- it sold the sla- slavery. I can't talk this morning, forgive me. Falsely accused of assault, imprisoned, and forgotten about by the one person who, after he helped, said it would remember him. Joseph experienced a lot of pain and hardship, yet he remained true to God. But in spite of all this, we see something miraculous in his story because there's more going on here than just the fate and fortune of a young adult who experienced a lot of trial and hardship. So in this passage, we see him confronting his brothers, and he messes with them a little bit, and he finally admits, I am Joseph, I am your brother. Imagine how they must have felt standing in front of him. Years and years and years later, they don't even recognize him. He doesn't even look like one of them anymore. He's probably clean-shaven. He's wearing the regalia of the people of Egypt. The Egyptians, uh, his people were shepherds, and, and we see later on in Genesis' story that the Egyptians look down upon shepherds, and they're hairy, and, and you know what I mean? So there's some differences. So it makes sense that they wouldn't recognize him. Imagine how they must have felt, Right? Oh, no. (laughs) This is Joseph. And oh, no. And we did all of this stuff. Oh, uh, we're in for it now. We are in trouble, right? That deep feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like, I get a deep feeling in the pit of my stomach. Like, when I'm just driving by and I see a cop car with its lights on, and I haven't even done anything wrong. I'm like, oh, oh, no. So, Sean, if you ever pull me over can mess with me a little bit. 
Imagine how they must have felt. These feelings of terror that their sin has found them out, right? That they are going to be destroyed. That all of the stuff that they did to their brother, he will finally call them to account. But what does Joseph say to them? He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's words to them is, hey, don't be afraid. He calms them. He calms them. And he acknowledges that God used their dark deeds for his purposes of salvation. And he warns them. There's more famine coming. And he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So what we see here in this story is that God had a plan to preserve his people, and he was going to send one of his people to the mightiest nation on earth at the time, and through this person to accomplish not just Joseph's rise out of prison and promotion for its own sake, but the preservation of not only the Egyptians, but the people of God, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not only is he going to bring his entire family, which would include all of his brother's family too, he's going to give them land, a place within Egypt for their very own, where they can settle and raise their families and be part of Egyptian society. And even though the famine will touch the world, his family, as well as the Egyptians, will be preserved. So the remnant has been saved. And also, reconciliation has begun. Forgiveness has been extended. And even though later on in the story, the brothers become afraid after Jacob, uh, after Jacob dies. They think that, that Joseph is going to pull a Michael Corleone and Godfather too, right? Wait for the mom to die and then take Fredo out in the lake and get rid of him because he betrayed him earlier in the movie. They think Joseph is going to do that to them. And Joseph has to continually reassure them, listen, I forgive you. <laughs> This is all part of God's plan, even if we didn't realize it. It doesn't negate the evil that they did to him, but he forgave it. He forgave it. So to summarize this part of the Joseph story, Joseph is sent to Egypt to save Egypt, his family, and those suffering under the famine. So notice here in the story, Joseph does good to those who would normally not accept him, the Egyptians. Joseph does good for those who actually did hurt him, his brothers, his own family members who beat him, threw him in a pit, and sold him. He did good to those who were actually his enemies. Again, his own family were his enemies. And what does he do? He treats them well. He forgives them, and he blesses them. They stripped him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him for money. They took his coat, dipped it in the blood of the animals, brought it to his dad and said, Joseph got mauled by a wild animal in the wilderness and it destroyed their father. All of this, Joseph works for their good. And he does good for those who are outside of his own people. The Egyptians, those who are outside of God's covenant promises to his forefathers. So with that in mind, let's look at the reading from Luke. Now we get to the words of Jesus. Now, these words are some of the most familiar, as well as some of his least followed. Right? It's almost as if we read the Gospels, and all the difficult sayings of Jesus, we immediately gloss over them, or immediately try to think of a way we don't actually have to do what he said. One of my personal favorites to try to get out of it is when people say, well, 
this is before the cross. So this is still Old Testament, right? And so this is all related to the law. And the law has been done away with. And so if the law has been done away with, we don't actually have to do what Jesus tells us to do in the Gospels because then that would be law to try to follow his commands. This is nonsense of the highest order, of the worst sort and poor interpretation. Nowhere does Jesus give any of us a free pass on any of this. I'm going to read some of it again. He says in Luke 27, I say to, to, to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not, with not, do not withhold your tunic either. Give everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. These are hard sayings, brothers and sisters. These are difficult sayings, because it fights against everything within us. It is ingrained in us to hate our enemy, to build up ill, Ill will and ill feelings towards our enemy. Christ says, love your enemies. So in the mind of his hearers here, the enemies of the people were obviously the Romans, right? The Roman Empire was probably the greatest enemy at the time. And the Jews of this time were always revolting. They would revolt, Rome would come in and crush the revolt, kill the leaders, and then they would revolt again. And Rome would come in and kill the leaders, crush the rebellion, and they would revolt again. This happened over and over again. This was a problem area. And it got so bad that after the time of Christ, in the year AD 70, the Romans said, that's it. And they came through and they destroyed the temple, they razed Jerusalem, and that was it for the Judeans for the children of Israel. Rome had enough. (laughs) But look here. Jesus is turning everything upside down. What are we supposed to do to our enemies? We are supposed to fight them, resist them, recruit others to join in the fight against them, talk badly about them. Jesus' way is different. He says, love them, bless them, Give to them without expectation of repayment. Do good to those who hate you. He didn't say do good to the person you had a strong disagreement with in high school and aren't talking anymore. He says do good to those who hate you. And reflecting on this passage, I wondered about the why of it all. Why do we have to love our enemies? Why do we have to do good to those who hate us? Why are we tasked with a counterintuitive treatment of those who, know, who not only have the worst in mind for us, but who can also bring harm upon us and wish harm upon us? And I think part of the reason is 
when we fight our enemies, literally or figuratively, when we're struggling against something or someone, even if we win, we often sow the seeds of future conflict. And we see this, brothers and sisters, all the time, playing out in different areas of our lives, in foreign policy. Oh, we see this. This is a truth. We spend time looking to destroy someone. We plant the seeds of our own future destruction. When we love our enemies, we use peace to plant the seed of future peace, even at cost to ourselves. It's easy to love those who love me. It's easy for me to love my wife and my family, but it's harder for me to love somebody who hates me. It's hard for me to love somebody I hate. And it's only a benefit to me if I love those that I hate or love those that hate me. And this is why Jesus' words are so hard here is because he asks of us more than most of us are willing to give. And also kind of who are our enemies nowadays, right? Particularly in this day and age, our enemies are those who we disagree with strongly now. We make enemies, I think, quicker than we used to as a society, as a culture. People who disagree with us, it's easier to dehumanize them, right? And paint everybody in broad strokes than it is to extend the love of Christ as Christians, right? And oftentimes, maybe even the person that you've built up in your mind as your enemy, if you were to confront them about it, they might not even know who you are. Right? They might not even know that that you're your enemy, that you hate them. Because you've built this up inside of yourself. Hate, brothers and sisters, turns our gaze inward. But the love of Christ turns our gaze outward. When we hate, we you probably hated people in your life because we're all human, right? There's think of somebody in your life that you hated. Hated, 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 hated. How much time did you spend talking about that person? How much emotional energy did you invest grumbling about that person and heaping all of your negative energy, all of your negative emotion on that person? I had a horrible, horrible job once working for a timeshare company. And I had, about, I had at one point one of the worst bosses ever I've ever worked for in my entire life. It was, it was horrible because before then, at a different part of the company, I had great bosses. And then I went to a new place, and I had the worst boss I've ever had in my life. It was the worst experience. This person undermined me at every single turn. This person undid the work that I was trying to do. And I wasn't very good at what I was doing, to be honest. But part of the reason why is when the people who you're supposed to report to try to undo your work... <laughs> that's like, ah, uh, that's very annoying. And I spent so much time hating that person. That job became so exhausting to me because I spent so much time pouring out all of my hate, all of my scorn, all of my dislike on that person in my mind and in my heart. And when I finally got out of there, it felt like I had been freed. But brothers and sisters, the funny thing was, even after I left that job, those feelings of hatred were still there. When that person's name would come up in conversations because I still had friends in the company, that would elicit this stream of profanity and anger out of me because I spent building up this person in my mind so much hate. I put, invested so much emotional energy into that that 
it had a profound effect on me. And it took me a little while to learn this. And I found these words in Scripture, and then I began to pray for that person. And slowly, over some time, it took a while, but I was able to kick free of that. And some of you sitting here, there may be people groups, there might be individuals in your family, there might be friends, there might be acquaintances, there might be people who you hate. There may even be people who hate you. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, find them and show them the love of Christ. Your enemy. That's your homework. Not just for today, but forever. (laughs) Go to the people who hate you and work for their good, like Joseph. Now, let's get Jesus here. So Jesus, he does good to those who would normally, to those who did not accept him. Jesus does good for those who actually did hurt him. Jesus does good for those who actually were his enemies. Jesus did good for those who were outside of the people of God, just like Joseph did in the Genesis story. Like Joseph, Jesus does good to those who did not accept him. Joseph's brothers put him in a pit, sold him into slavery. Jesus' family, some of them did not believe in him initially. The people who were supposed to know God were the very ones who persecuted him. Jesus actively worked for the good of his enemies. When they came to arrest him in the garden, what happens in the garden, right? When they come to get him, Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh. He takes out his sword. He cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. What does Jesus do? I don't know how he does it, but he touches the man's ear and he heals him. His enemy, the one that's sent to arrest him and bring him to trial, Jesus stops and ministers to him. He still gets taken away and crucified. And while they're nailing him to the cross, Jesus asks God to forgive them. Jesus helped those who were outside of God's people, the Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman, those who the religious leaders and the people would not only scorn but hate, He helped them. He loved them. He served them. Jesus took all of the hate and sin and distrust and malice and evil and all of the brokenness that humanity has been mired in, and he nailed it to the cross. He experienced the deepest levels of hate, and he used his experience of that hate into the vehicle of our salvation. Earlier I asked why we should love our enemies. St. Paul says something remarkable in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us even when we were in sin. And he loved us so much, Christ died for us. He says in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now than that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You, me, every single person sitting here, when we were outside of Christ, we were God's enemies, St. Paul says. We were God's enemies. All of us. Every single person sitting here, you were an enemy of God. But what did God do? Some of us hated God. Some of you were ambivalent about God. But what does God do? Even when we were his enemy, passively, actively working against him, hating him, what does God do? Christ is crucified for the sake of his enemies. God demonstrates to us how we are to love our enemies because we were his enemies. And if he has forgiven us and brought us into his family, then our enemies can be forgiven and be reconciled to us. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we love our enemies and seek their good 
because we were God's enemies. And Christ died to change it. And I'm not going to sit here and nuance different ways we can try and discuss about Jesus' call to love our enemies, how it plays itself out. I'm not going to do that today because I want the hard words of Christ to stick in our ears and ring in our ears like a little earworm, like a song that you can't stop singing, right? You, you, some of you, there's a song that my wife hates. If I sing it, she's like, stop it. And I'm like, why? I love that song. She's like, it's a stupid song. And if you sing it, I'm going to, uh, it's awful. It's like that, right? You get that song. It's like a song stuck in your head that you don't want to hear. But I want that to happen to all of you today. I want this earworm of love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I want that to stay in your minds this week. And I want you to think about how you can show God's love and God's grace and God's compassion and God's mercy to someone who hates you or even, okay, mildly dislikes you. How about that? That's a good place to start, right? Find somebody who might be slightly irritated with you and then maybe slowly move your way up to somebody who hates you. But brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to do. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If these sermons have been a blessing to you, I ask that you take a few minutes and help us if you could. We've recently begun fundraising efforts for some repairs that our building really, really needs. If you could, go to our Facebook page, Zion Stone United Church of Christ, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. You'll see a link to a fundraising page we've set up at GoFundMe, which I'll include in the description of this episode and all episodes moving forward. GoFundMe.com slash SaveZionStoneUCC. If you could help us out, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, please keep us in prayer as we go through this fundraising process. You can also, please, if you have some time, rate us on iTunes. And you can also find this podcast on Spotify as well. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you.